Hey ladies, welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Trisha, and I'm a registered dietitian nutritionist. On our episode today, we are going to dive deeper into this complex relationship that we have with our food, and we're going to talk about food addiction. And so in this episode, we are going to start to understand a little bit more about food addiction, how it's determined, um, who is more at risk for food addiction, what are some of the consequences, what the current research says about food addiction, and then understanding what that looks like for the future and what we can do with the data and the research that's currently being studied about food addiction. Now, food addiction is something that I feel like a lot of people throw around. We throw around it pretty easily. I think most people believe in the idea of food addiction, but when we talk about other addictions, we really start to struggle about how food is similar to those and if the consequences are the same. And in fact, in research in general, there is no clear consensus when it comes to food addiction at this point in time. The concept of food addiction addiction is still in its infancy with most of the research taking place probably just over the last 20 years. So when we start talking about food addiction or how we're going to understand food addiction in this episode is having some kind of um, unhealthy relationship with food. And it can be characterized by different things, either a persistent consumption of certain foods individuals are unable to stop consuming that food even though they know there's a negative consequence and there's a compulsiveness. And this condition, food addiction, often shares similarities with other substances including having withdrawal symptoms when you're no longer consuming that substance, a loss of control, and cravings is a big one. So food addiction, again, is not something that's formally recognized in the DSM-5 manual. Um, DSM-5 in the States is our codes, they're diagnostic tools used by the American Psychiatric Association. And so knowing that food addiction is not something formally recognized in the DSM-5 kind of shows you that it's not something that is being widely accepted and that we know it needs future research. So when we talk about food addiction, what does that mean and how do we even determine who's addicted to food? So as there was some changes in the DSM-5 criteria and they were trying to figure out and add other substances to things that were considered addictive, this idea of food addiction emerges. And because there's no, at the time, there was no real way to decide who was addicted to food, a lot of these researchers developed a tool to understand a little bit more about food addiction and the patterns of behavior that went along with food addiction. The name of the scale that they developed is called the Yale Food Addiction Scale. And so over time, this tool was, is used in research to identify eating patterns that resemble other addictions, such other addictions such as drugs and alcohol and gambling. 
And so initially this tool was created in 2009. And then as they were doing more and more research, they updated this tool in 2016 to be more specific and identify more people who um, would meet the criteria and the behaviors associated with food addiction. And some of the criteria that they found was that food addiction um, and food as a substance mimicked other substance abuse disorders, including having cravings, diminished control over food intake, withdrawal symptoms, and then also having negative health consequences, negative health consequences um, by consuming these substances. So this Yale Food Addiction Scale was developed in 2009 by researchers and then validated and then updated again in 2016 to be more specific so that they could identify more and really kind of really figure out a little bit more about that um, based on the studies that they had done. Now, it's important to note that this food addiction scale is was used and developed so that they could really try to figure out and assess food addiction in general. And that part of this now updated food addiction, Yale food addiction scale is self-reported. So individuals basically are asked a series of questions or statements that they're given, about 35 of them. And what it's trying to identify is behaviors that have been present in the last 12 months that that participants have been um, partaking in. And so they are basically these 35 questions talking about what behaviors individuals have done over the past 12 months. They are scored on a zero to seven scale, zero meaning that they never do these behaviors and seven meaning that they participate in these behaviors every day. Some of the sample questions could be something like, or I've actually taken out three sample questions. In the past 12 months, I continued to eat certain foods even though I was no longer hungry. In the past 12 months, I ate to the point I felt physically ill. In the past 12 months, I had problems with my family or friends because of how much I overate. So I think you have to remember that you want to take these questions in its entirety because as I'm reading these, I'm thinking, oh shit, I meet the criteria for these. So these are just three questions and the test in itself is scored on the, um, the totality of the 35 questions, okay? What, we, what the researchers found out was that participants who scored higher on this scale were correlated with obesity, elevated BMI. There was some kind of like impulsivity around food that was seen. There was an association of like food related diseases related to the amount and the type of food that was consumed. So um, diabetes, high cholesterol, things that are more lifestyle related. And there was some disordered eating that was associated too with binge eating and weight cycling. And so based off of these correlations, some of these studies were then done to really figure out what percent of people are addicted to food using this tool in studies that are, um, that are undergoing, that have either been undergone or that continue in the future. Now, 
I have left all of this in the show notes. So there is this one team at a University of Michigan. There's a, a psychologist. She's great. And she does a YouTube talk. I left that in the show notes if you're interested in learning a little bit more about it. Um, and there's also a new recent article that came out in the British, I think it's in the British Journal of Medicine. And it talks about really trying to figure out this idea and where the research is going. So please refer to those in the show notes. So, so far the evidence, so when I'm talking about the studies, the studies are performed with that lab and also with our colleagues. So these are some of the, some of the systemic reviews um, that have kind of been out there, or the, I'm sorry, the, the systematic reviews that are already out there. So when we're talking about the percent of people that are addicted to food using this, this um, Yale food addiction scale, what so far some of the more recent systematic reviews show is that using that scale, the prevalence of food addiction was 14% in adults, 14% in adults, and 12% in children. What they found is that they were able to identify that the, that the prevalence of food addiction reaches 32% in people with obesity that have had bariatric surgery, and over 50% of the people that rated higher on the um, food addiction scale, also 50% of those are doing some kind of binge eating disorder. And so again, remembering that this Yale food addiction scale assesses 11 symptom criteria for substance use disorder, that is currently in the DSM-5. And some of the symptoms include diminished control over intake, cravings, withdrawal, and continuing to eat those foods even though there is negative consequences. So what they found is, is well, to kind of dive into this a little bit more, is those individuals that scored high on the, on the um, food addiction scale tended to have more diet-related consequences or just overall um, consequences associated with food addiction that included more obesity, um, more binge eating was seen, more diabetes, more high cholesterol. These participants that scored higher on the scale found that it was much harder um, for them to lose weight because there was kind of this impulsivity that was being part of it. Um, we know that there were food cravings associated with people that scored higher on the scale. There was a bias towards foods that um, caused more of that impulsivity. And we also saw, or I'm sorry, the research also showed that people were using these foods to regulate their emotions. Um, some of the other characteristics of this scale was that there seemed to be some kind of dopamine dysfunction associated with those who performed higher on the scale. So it's so one of the reasons why food addiction is being studied and trying to figure out a little bit more about the difference between food addiction and other addictions is because with other addictions, first of all, they're well studied, but what the concern with food addiction is, is I think it's 
multifaceted for a long time. Obesity behaviors associated with obesity have always been blamed on the individual. Um, and now that there is a lot more research being undergone, now that they are really exploring a little bit more about what is happening with the individual who scores high on that, what happens to their brain, what's going on physiologically um, and behaviorally, they're able to kind of tease out a little bit more characteristics. And I think it's good because it actually can, it's actually just shows that obesity is a much more complex issue. And that weight gain is also a much more complex issue than just calories in, calories out. But one of the real reasons why food addiction is something that I think a lot of researchers emphasize the importance of is that with other substances, usually people are exposed to those substances um, as they are older. So perhaps in adolescence or maybe older than that. But with food, most people are, are exposed from a very early time in their life, usually at birth, right? And so they're really trying to understand that people who have this exposure or who are more at risk for food addiction, that this related exposure, um, and that's repeated over time, and that's having this exposure in these first years of life, trying to understand a little bit more about that, what happens as the brain is forming, because again, you're eating food from the time that you're born, right? So like, what is happening? Are there different kinds of foods that are going to um, change your brain, um, change habits that you would have done? Um, as opposed to if you were exposed to these things at a later age. And so with kids, what they found so far is that kids that are exposed to the foods that tend to be more addictive, which we're going to get into now, if they're exposed to those at an earlier age, that they may have a higher BMI. They may be these same kids that are prone to eat in response to emotion, they're less able to feel like they have satiety. Um, they're less able to understand the hunger fullness cues. And so over time, how you treat people that are going to, you know, especially that are addicted to food from an early age, they're probably not going to respond to regular treatment for somebody who doesn't have food addiction. And it probably really kind of dives into this whole idea of why diets don't work. There's probably a lot more stuff that's kind of going on. And so that's the difference between food and other addictions that you're going to have exposure from an earlier age. And the consequences of it can be so profound because the brain is new and it hasn't even formed any um, habits. And so really trying to dig into that and what that looks like for the future. So what does the current research say about food addiction? Are all foods addictive? No, but are there some foods that are more addictive than others? And so that's where we go into food addiction. So most of the research at this point in time says that foods that are higher in carbohydrates and higher in fat um, also possibly higher in salt and higher in additives, um, in ingredients that make us want to eat more of it, addictive ingredients. These foods also tend to have a very low nutritional value are the foods that most people report that 
that they are addicted to. And I don't think that's a surprise for probably anybody. Um, one of the things that that the studies show is that these foods are very much very different than other foods that we that are more natural to um to us so for instance in the youtube video if you watch it there's this woman who is part of the research talks about this idea of high fat foods in itself like nuts and high sugar foods as in bananas and how we don't become addicted to those foods but what it is it's these low nutritional value more man-made foods that have an equal concentration of carbohydrates and fat that is unseen in you know foods that are a little bit more naturally occurring are the ones that are going to be the most problematic and they're problematic because they engage our reward our reward system in a way that when they're doing brain MRIs, they can see that eating these foods, especially at high levels, actually cause our brains to light up that reward center. And so that's the part of it that mimics addiction to other substances too. So our body's responding in that same way, which I feel like if you're eating foods that are really, you know, you all know the foods that I'm talking about, it's going to be the things like ice cream and milkshakes and things that are so yummy that are going to cause us to want to keep eating it. That's the things that are going to engage our reward system and really feel like, oh my gosh, I can't stop eating this and maybe even make you feel like you're addicted to it. So in the studies that have been done so far, the foods that most people struggle with are chocolate, ice cream, pizza, cookies, chips, cake, cheeseburgers, there's a whole scale, but they tend to be the ones that are most, um, the most that people struggle with. And again, these are foods that tend to be higher in fat, higher in sugar, higher in salt. They may have more additives added to them and they have a lower nutritional value in the sense that they're high calories. So you don't need a whole bunch of them and they don't provide a lot of nutrition. And so then they had in these studies, participants go back and figure out which foods that they ate that also had high sugar and maybe even high um, fat, but didn't have the same equal concentration of fat and um, fat and sugar. And what they found is that people did not struggle with foods such as apples, corn, salmon, bananas, carrots, and brown rice. So one of the things that that I think kind of was able to be kind of taken out of this is that there it's not it's not just that the food is again it's not that it just contains like carbohydrates or fat it's that the carbohydrates and fat are an equal they're in equal levels that's not like the food that we probably all the more naturally occurring food so that higher sugar content also is not your regular sugar so when we're talking about like um sugar from like apples and bananas and carrots and brown rice it's different that's going to be your more complex um sugars these are going to be things that are made of other components like fiber and other things in it 
that are not going to be absorbed into your bloodstream quickly, that you're going to have very stable blood sugar levels. The ones that are more problematic are the ones that are higher in sugar that is refined. And so these are things that um, are absorbed very quickly. So these are the foods that are going to be like you eat them. There's not a lot of other nutrition in them. And so as you eat them, you may notice that your blood sugar drops and then it spikes back up. This is what we're kind of thinking is more problematic. And also, these are the ones that are going to cause these like withdrawal symptoms, this feeling of loss of control, this binging, and these elevated dopamine levels. And so there is some thought that because these are um these foods mess kind of with your blood sugar in the sense that your blood sugar goes up and down, that these refined carbohydrates are able to become very available to your body very quickly. And that it kind of like starts that whole process of like having that addictive response. Whereas if you're eating other foods that have sugar in them, you know, like your yogurts and your carrots and your bananas, those things have lots of other ingredients in them and they release much slower into your body. And so they become less addictive and you're not going to get like, they just take longer to digest. So you're not going to get that same like immediate um, and powerful addictive response that you would from the other food items, which are going to have some changes in our brain and are going to really start to make you feel like you're addicted to them. So that we know that those foods, again, the ones that are higher calorie, higher fat, higher salt, higher additives, low nutritional values are the ones that engage our reward system in a way that is problematic and can be linked to cravings and struggling to stop eating them and that's where the par- the parallels then become more similar to other addictions. So in these studies, were, there, were, were all foods addictive? No. What they found were that the ones that had the high levels of refined carbohydrates um, and added fats, your sweet and salty foods, your ultra processed foods. So that's what the newest research talks about. These ultra processed foods that aren't natural are the ones that are the ones that are most at risk for causing that behavior that seems more addictive. And these foods tend to be more equal parts of the refined carbs and fats as opposed to other foods. And that natural foods in general, don't have that same equal proportions. And again, they're digested differently and they're not as readily absorbable causing those behaviors. What they saw is that the people who are most at risk for having um, these addictive behaviors were people who had a history of dieting or restriction with food or were really trying hard to control the food. And then, of course, people who are food insecure, because probably these foods are going to be more readily available. Um, And so think about that, the consequences of that. I think we're seeing that is that you have these foods that are cheaper. They are more potentially addicting for some people. 
and they are more affordable and cost effective. They are probably exposed. People are probably exposed to them at an earlier age. And so trying to understand what that looks like in the long term um, can be really devastating. So with all of that said and a little bit more of that understanding, what we know is that there's so much more research that is needed when it comes to food addiction. We think that these processed foods make our blood sugar go up and down and that these are the up and the down and the glycemic crash that you have, that your blood sugar is up and it's down. And then feeling like there's a reward for that um, is where the problem is. But they don't really know like, if everybody responds to the same food, not everybody is addicted to these foods. Um, they don't know about the amount that happens that you have to consume in order for that to happen. Um, there is probably an addictive component because of the additives that are being added to enhance the flavor. So that's the other thing is there's different things in the food that we didn't have in food years and years ago. And so what is happening with these additives? Are these additives um, contributing? Probably. And they're enhancing the flavor and there is a lot of research and science that's going into that so that we can continue to buy these products so that we are then eating more and we're becoming addicted to these foods. So really trying to figure out what the role is in that. And that's really big because that's the whole food industry in general. Um, so it's a huge, it has the potential to be something that is very consequential in people's lives and the impact um, of what we're unable to control and how to control it is is pretty big. Um, we don't know what each person's threshold is in terms of what it is for you to become addicted to it. Um, we don't know we just don't know like what is happening, how long it takes for it. Like there's some research that talks about like, um, does the addiction start like when you're eating the food or is it more when you have these blood sugar levels like four hours later, or is it a combination that you have this two prong approach that like you first want to eat it when it hits your mouth and then four hours later you want to eat it again. And so of course, all of that needs to be studied because at this point, um, a lot of these studies are in animals and it doesn't always, it doesn't always correlate to humans in the same way. So that's where the research is going, trying to figure out what, like what is really contributing. If there's a, if you're somebody who has like more of a sugar craving, what does that look like? If you're somebody who has a tendency to crave more things that are, are fat, what does that look like? So as you can see, when we're talking about this, that there's just a lot of stuff that goes into this whole understanding of food addiction. Um, if you feel like you're somebody who is in a place that you may be struggling, obviously I would say to you to seek professional help with um, a healthcare provider or nutritionist or a mental health professional that can provide guidance to you and support your specific needs. Um, again, I talked about some resources that are going to be in the show notes. These are mostly YouTube videos and some studies. 
But early when I was doing this podcast, I actually talked to a woman who's a therapist that um, specializes in disordered eating. And so I can put the link to her podcast episode up in there too, if you feel like you need a little bit more support in that. Um, But also kind of really trying to figure out if you need some professional help to help you with either some cognitive behavioral therapy or just kind of recognizing some of these behaviors, knowing there are support groups out there. Um, And then also, I think, kind of having this understanding that some of this also might be related to managing stress, because if you're somebody who is eating based on your emotions, and that's what you've learned, then trying to really tease that out is something that will be important and probably why it will be helpful for you to contact or consult with a professional. Now, one caveat to all this, which I want you to really understand is that when we talk about food addiction, I think a lot of times we're thinking about somebody who looks like they are in a bigger body. But I want you to understand that BMI, which really isn't being used as much anymore, or general appearance of what somebody looks like does not tell us about someone's relationship with food. So If you see somebody who is in a bigger body, it doesn't mean that they have um, an unhealthy relationship with food or that there is a food addiction because we know that based on all of the research that's coming out um, about obesity, that it's not so simple as we once thought it was. Again, as simple as calories in, calories out, or that we're blaming the individual. And also, you can have somebody who represents in a normal body weight that may have some of these addictive behaviors, could do some binge eating, can do some weight cycling. And so it doesn't tell us that they have a healthy relationship with food either. So I just want to kind of throw that out there. So when we talk about food addiction, it's really important to understand that it's important to continue to study it because it starts to take a little bit more of the blame off the individual and it starts to see that it's a bigger problem. Um, You know, hopefully it will also have less stigma, less blame on a personal level or an individual level. And we can start to see that there's other things that have to take place in order to create a safe environment and so that we can feel safe when it comes to the foods that we're consuming. And so in the YouTube video in particular, one of the researchers talks about this idea of tobacco abuse. And back in the day, it was seen as something that was so, um, everybody did it, right? And then that it really needed to be changed on a level that was on a policy level to really create a safer environment for individuals. That if you're just stigmatizing the person or the individual, it would be very hard to make a big change because it's not, there were so many other variables um, as part of it. And so knowing that as they do more and more research into food addiction, knowing that there probably will need to also be policy changes to create a safer environment, to create safer food, to have less marketing to kids at a younger age about certain foods and the more addictive foods, maybe keeping foods, these particular foods out of schools, especially at a younger age, and knowing that advertising and branding and commercials and that there's just a ton 
of money that's being put into making these foods that are the most addictive, um, into making them addictive so that we can be repeat customers and continue to eat the foods in high consumptions and to continue to increase sales of those food products. So it ends up being such a bigger issue than just on an individual basis. So some of the takeaways from this episode as we end is to know that not all food is created equal, um, that the foods that tend to be the most addictive are the ones that are high in refined carbohydrates and added fats. These tended to be more ultra-processed, have lower nutritional value, intended to have the highest reward on brain MRIs. They tended to be the most appealing to people and they tended to be the ones that people ate more compulsively and that mimicked other addictions. Um, Not everybody struggles with food addiction. We talked about the statistics, but Knowing that seeking the help of a mental health professional should help you or at least maybe help you identify some strategies that can help you, Um, even a dietitian, anybody that is specializing in disordered eating can help you with that if you feel like you're somebody that's struggling with food addiction. And one of the things that can help that is making sure that you eat regularly and that you don't over-restrict with food in terms of dieting because we know that hunger tends to make it worse and over-restriction tends to make it worse. And that as more and more of these studies come out, as more of these studies are bigger, as as more humans are being um, evaluated in studies, that there's likely going to have to be environmental policies in place to protect people so that people don't regularly struggle or feel like they're exposed to something that is with, that's not really within their control. So in conclusion, knowing that food addiction is complex, that there is and can be significant physical and emotional consequences, um, that this whole concept of food addiction is evolving and is still being debated in the scientific community. Some people don't feel like food addiction has the same consequences as other addictions, such as currently opioid addiction. Um, So it's really trying to do some more research to figure out how food and which foods and the amount that mimics things that come with other addictive substances. And recognizing that if you do any of these behaviors, that seeking help is the first step towards regaining control over your relationship with food. And any time that you're dealing with any kind of disordered eating, that there's support out there and there's guidance out there from professionals that can help you um, not struggle and to have a journey into a healthier and happier life. So again, please refer to the resources in the show notes if you feel like you would like more information about this. And I thank you so much for listening today. Have a great weekend.